The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have one Mohammed Alarian, and I have to tell you, this was really a delightful conversation about all sorts of things related to central banks, economics, investing. There are few people in the world of finance as thoughtful and articulate uh, as Mohammed Alarian is. I have been chasing him down for the better part of a year before I finally cornered him and managed to uh, wrangle him uh, into submission, and he couldn't have been more charming or, or delightful. Uh, we only had him for an hour, so this is going to be a relatively quick uh, podcast. It's less than an hour, but it is. F- I promise you, you will listen to this more than once. It is full of insight and depth and really just, just a tour de force conversation about the way to think about thinking uh, about finance and investing. So with no further ado, our conversation with Mohammed Alarian. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Mohammed Alarian. He is the chief economic advisor to Allianz. They're a large insurance company with trillions in assets. They also own PIMCO and a number of other significant assets. I'm only going to give you the short version of our guest's uh, CV, because the whole version will take up the full first segment. Cambridge and Oxford ultimately ends up as managing director at Citigroup in London, spent 15 years at the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C., where he served as deputy director, uh, chair of the president's Global Development Council, named to foreign policies top 100 global thinkers and one of the 500 most powerful people on the planet, named one of 25 most influential people's list to investment advisors annual survey, author of When Markets Collide, a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. The book won Financial Times Book of the Year and the Goldman Sachs Book of the Year Award. His latest book, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. (sighs) Mohammed Alarian, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm I'm very excited to to have you here. Also, um, there's so much stuff I want to go over, but I have to start with with your upbringing, which is really kind of fascinating. You're born in New York City. You spend some time in Egypt. Ultimately, your father becomes ambassador to France, and you spend a number of years living in France. Given this international upbringing. How did that shape your view of the world? It had a very important influence on me because I got exposed to different cultures at a very early age. It wasn't easy changing not just friends and schools, but countries and languages was quite hard. You speak a number of languages, don't you? I I speak some, um, (laughs) but I tell you, as I got older, 
um, I, I found it harder and I asked my father ultimately to send me to boarding school because I couldn't change countries and languages and friends every two to three years. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And, and given that background, I would have pegged you for a career in either public policy or international diplomacy. What, what attracted you to finance? So that's why I started in terms of the International Monetary Fund. It was global. It was policy-oriented. Um, it was based on economics. And when I was turning 40, I realized that I had never tried the private sector, that I had spent 15 years at the IMF, that I had never tried the private sector. So I took a two-year leave from the IMF, and I joined what was at, at the time Solomon Brothers, mm -hmm. that then became Solomon Smith Barney, then became City. And I wanted a taste of the private sector. And I can tell you, Barry, it was quite a change. I, I can imagine, to say the least. So you were, let, let's start with that public policy work. So you were at the IMF for 15 years. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned there, and what do you think the future role of the IMF should be in the global economy? So the amazing thing about the IMF is that at a very young age, you get exposed to policymaking. You're part of discussions in crisis economies, countries facing crises, and they have to make really difficult policy choices. And you realize very early on how difficult that is. These aren't academic debates where people are trying to figure out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. These are real countries in the midst of real, either fiscal or other forms of crisis. How does that affect the process by which policies are made? It seems like everything is an emergency footing. Correct. And you don't want to get there. So the whole point of the IMF is to make sure that you don't get there. And you don't get there by having an annual checkup. It's called the Article 4 surveillance. But at some point, quite a few countries get there. And I was there when there were all sorts of crises going on. Um, and I was lucky enough to, to have um, a front row seat in that. And you learn very quickly that you have to make compromises, that a lot of the time policymakers are making decisions with incomplete information and they don't control the politics of it. So for me, it was an amazing eye-opener because I came from the academic world and I, I realized it's much more complicated in practice. So, so you're dealing with real-world conditions, you're dealing with politics, and that's before we even get to how do you assemble a policy on, on that sort of footing. So what surprised you most of all the various uh, emergencies the IMF had to deal with? What, what was the one thing that you witnessed that said, that's amazing, I never would have imagined either A, this happening in the first place, or B, this sort of response to it? So, so what amazed me in the beginning is how misunderstood financial markets were. So I'll give an example. This is the mid-80s. Mexico um, had almost declared bankruptcy. Latin America was hit, and they decide to send a team of us to New York to talk to the financial sector. And believe it or not, at the time, that was very, very unusual. So a group of us went, and we went to see an asset manager. And we asked the question, what's the first thing you did when you heard that Mexico was having difficulty facing and paying its debt? And that financial asset manager said something that was very surprising to me. He said, I sold Chile. Now, as the economist in me, I thought, what a silly thing to do. Why would you ever sell Chile? Chile is the well-managed economy out there. It is not Venezuela. It is not Argentina. You keep Chile. And I said, so my react is, why would you do that? Thinking, wow, here are irrational markets. And he explained it in a way that 
makes total sense to me now, having seen the market, the market side, which is that he expected redemptions from his Latin American funds because the Mexico news would lead to redemption. He needs to sell across the board. And what hadn't been hit hard as yet was Chile. So he sold Chile. And for me, that was a realization that economists needed to understand the financial markets much better. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Mohamed El Arian. He is uh, the economic advisor to Allianz, a contributing editor to the FT and a columnist at Bloomberg View. Let's jump right into a, a phrase that you uh, coined back in 2009, the new normal. What is the new normal? So the context was coming out of the crisis. PIMCO was in a much better position than others because we had navigated the crisis relatively well and had protected our clients' assets. And we could look forward and ask the question, what comes next? And starting in January, we realized that this was not your typical cyclical crisis. This wasn't like an elastic band, you stretch it and it comes back. That this was a structural and secular phenomenon. And we debated how best to communicate to our own people and to the outside world that this is not business as usual, that we have to think differently. And after lots of different permutation, we came up with the concept of the new normal as a way of signaling that it would not be a cyclical recovery, but instead we would face a prolonged period of low growth and structural challenges. So there are a couple of other people who have described this era similarly. Larry Summers famously called it the secular stagnation. Is that all that different from uh, the new normal? No, it's very much the same thing. I mean, the irony here, Barry, is that when we went public with it in May of 2009, it got very little traction. In fact, I remember a policymaker telling me it was an idiotic concept <laughs> that the West lives cyclically and it's the emerging world that lives secularly and structurally. Makes sense. With time, when it became evident that we were having difficulty growing, when it became evident that the forecasts were all being revised one side downwards, this notion started to gain acceptance. In 2014, the IMF called it the new mediocre. Right, and then, sounds familiar. And then um, Larry Summers came up with the phrase, this is secular stagnation, but it speaks to the same thing, which is a prolonged period of low growth. The irony, Barry, is that now that conventional wisdom has gotten to the new normal, as I argue with my book, I don't think it's any more a powerful concept for describing what's ahead of us. I think we're going to tip one way or the other. So in their book, Reinhardt and Rogoff, This Time It's Different, Eight Centuries of, of Financial Folly, they talk about what is normal following a financial crisis, subpar GDP, weak job creation, mediocre retail sales, but surprisingly pretty robust equity markets off of the lows. Um, that seems pretty consistent with, with new normal as well. How much of the new normal is a function of us living in a post-financial crisis world? A huge part. And there's two elements to it. One, as, as Reinhard and Rogoff pointed out, when you have a massive balance sheet issue, it takes you time to work through it. And you basically have four choices. You can either default, right. which is very, very costly. You can grow your way out of it. Well, that's really difficult. 
you can try and have a voluntary restructuring, or alternatively, you can go through financial repression. And that is central banks pushing interest rates down in order to tax creditors and subsidize debtors. And that's what we've had. We've had financial repression. We've had central banks use both interest rates and their balance sheets to push down interest um, costs and try and promote risk-taking in order to recapitalize the system. So you call this financial repression. Ray Dalio of Bridgewater calls it the beautiful deleveraging. There are some delightful phrases to describe what is a not-so-delightful era that, that we've been coming out of. And I have to ask, I know that something like 60 or 65,000 baby boomers are retiring every day. How much of this new normal and the secular stagnation is a question of just demographics? So part of it is there certainly are demographic elements to it, and there are also political elements to it, but there's lots of economics elements to it. I think the major issue, Barry, for anybody retiring or anybody at all is that part of the response to the new normal has been to borrow growth from the future and borrow financial returns from the future. As a result, as you point out, equity markets have done very well while fundamentals haven't. So we have a big gap. And the big question facing us today is, do fundamentals improve and validate asset prices and push them higher? Or alternatively, do do asset prices come down towards fundamentals and overshoot and pull the fundamentals down? That is the T-junction facing us today as we navigate the consequences of having relied too much on financial repression. So given that, what's the biggest surprise of the post-crisis financial repression era? What, What has happened in the past, let's call it eight years, that stands out as, hmm, nobody really expected that to occur. Oh, I can give you a whole list of improbables and unthinkables. I mean, think of the fact that we have negative nominal interest rates. How many people would have predicted that we'd have negative nominal interest rates? People were forecasting rising rates, hyperinflation, and collapse of the dollar. None of that came true. None of that came true. Who would have predicted that this frustration with low growth would lead to the emergence of non-establishment and and anti-establishment, non-traditional political forces on both sides of the Atlantic, and that we see it. We see it in America. Clearly, the Trump-Sanders phenomena is a reaction to something that's going on. No doubt about that. And in Europe? And we see it in Europe with the emergence of UKIP, with the emergence of the various parties in Germany, and of course, the National Front in France. Who would have predicted that we'd have a lot of risk-taking in finance, and very little risk-taking in corporations. Corporations are still sitting on a massive amount of cash, even though it's earning zero. And now they're being forced to give it back rather than invest it. Who would have thought that we'd have this big divergence? And yet we have the list of unthinkables. Who would have thought we would have such a worsening in income, wealth, inequality, so that it leads to an inequality of opportunity? I can give you the whole list of unthinkables and improbables that have occurred because we've been living this artificial world. But I stress, it's coming to an end. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Mohamed Alarian. He is an economic consultant to... A financial giant Allianz, a contributing editor to the FT, writes a column uh, where I do also at, at BloombergView.com and has is really been named one of the 100 most important or influential global thinkers by 
foreign policy and and generally an all-around eloquent uh, person describing the complex and occasionally chaotic world of finance. And I want to use that eloquence to jump right in to your current book, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. So let's talk about the Fed. Are they the only game in town? Yes, they are, as is the ECB, the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China. The list is long. Um, Central banks have taken on enormous responsibility. The first phase made sense where they, they had to step in and normalize very dysfunctional financial markets. But then, starting in 2010 in the case of the Fed and 2014 in the case of the ECB, they took on the responsibility for delivering macroeconomic outcomes. And they did so not by choice, but by necessity, because other policymakers weren't stepping up to the plate. You know, Nixon famously said, we're all Keynesians now. And, and that has led to a pretty standard manual for what to do following a recession. Private sector demand plummets. The government steps in with some sort of fiscal stimulus, whether it's repairing bridges and roads or some other big policy statement. The government steps in. That substitutes for a short period of time, that missing demand, and then eventually uh, the private sector catches up and the public sector can step out of the way. That seems to be missing this cycle. Is that part of the reason you say the, the Federal Reserve had no choice? So it happened but it didn't happen big enough. And most importantly, it happened in isolation of three other things that needed to happen. And therefore, it was not as effective and you didn't get the handoff that you're talking about. So what was missing? First, we invested in the wrong growth models. Go back 10 to 15 years, we somehow fell in love with finance and believed that it could promote economic growth. We even changed the name. We used to call it the financial service industry because we had this notion that it served the real economy. But then 10 to 15 years ago, we changed this notion and it became a standalone. I remember people talking that it was the next level of capitalism, agricultural, industry, manufacturing, services. And if you're really lucky, you get to financial services. So we invested in the wrong growth model and we stopped investing in infrastructure, in pro-growth tax reforms, in labor retooling. The second problem is we didn't deal with the lessons of past debt crises. You mentioned Reinhardt and Rogoff earlier. They point out that when you start with excessive indebtedness, if you don't deal with it quickly, not only does it crush those who are over-indebted, but it stops new capital from coming in. You get no new oxygen, fresh oxygen into the system. And then finally, we forgot how interdependent the world we live in is. And we didn't step up with global policy coordination, except for one instant in April 2009 at the London G20. So the problem is that while we had a stimulus, it wasn't big enough. And most critically, it wasn't accompanied by these three other things. And therefore, the handoff never occurred, which pulled central banks deeper and deeper into taking on too many policy obligations with too few instruments. So so let's bring this back to The Only Game in Town, um, the new book, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the Fed. In the book, you point out something that I found fascinating. Matt O'Brien uh, writes in the Washington Post, and he did a, I love this word count way of looking at Fed transcripts 
to figure out what they're talking about. And in 2008, as we were heading to the crisis, was the Fed worried about systemic risk? Well, according to O'Brien, and and you pass this along, uh, they were much more concerned with inflation. And, And if you think about the June meeting, the word count, 468 mentions of inflation, only 35 of either systemic risk or crisis. In August, that ratio was 322 to 19. And then the September 16th, 2008 meeting, and let me point out, this was immediately after the collapse of Lehman Brothers. It was still 129 mentions of inflation versus just four of either systemic risk or crisis. What does this tell us about the Fed? So I think it tells you something much bigger. And and, and that, I ended up by going along and looking at behavioral science to understand decision-making and why it is that we tend to frame things in a backward-looking manner, because that's what the Fed did. It tells you it's very hard to pivot your thinking from what you're comfortable with to what is happening and is new. And it's understandable. We don't like doing it. We, We as humans don't like doing it. We have an inclination to always go back to comforting things. So either we are in denial, the so-called blind spots, or we reframe um, issues so that we are more comfortable. And that's what the Fed was doing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Mohamed Alarian. He is the economic consultant and advisor to global financial giant Allianz uh, and writes for both the FT and Bloomberg View. You know, in, in the previous segment, we were discussing uh, some of the more fascinating impacts of, of the Fed fighting the last last battle. And I, I have a quote that I, I have to start this segment off with you. What all of this speaks to is the repeated ability of central banks to decouple asset prices from fundamentals. What does that mean? It's very simple. If you have a printing press in the basement and you're willing to use it and you're willing to engage in asset purchases, you can have an immediate influence on asset prices. It's that simple. And that's why we say you say asset prices decouple from fundamentals. Correct. For, for quite a while, you can decouple asset prices by increasing the demand and by changing risk preferences. And that's what central banks have done. Now, this is a bet that makes sense if you also manage to trigger better fundamentals so that ultimately the fundamentals validate the asset prices. If you don't, you cannot maintain forever this wedge between artificially high financial assets and sluggish fundamentals. So here we are in the first quarter of 2016, and it looks like stock prices are coming down to weak fundamentals. We're going to get into the issue of what else can be done to stimulate the fundamentals. But but let's talk a little bit about the global state of the economy. Why did markets suddenly discover, it, it seems like after uh, having ignored the fundamentals for a number of years, why did they suddenly decide that uh, maybe we have to pay attention to uh, weak economic growth? Because of the perfect storm. You know, this notion of a perfect storm is three things come together, and what you get is not just volatility, but you get the improbable as well. So what has been the perfect storm, the elements of the perfect storm? First, we are questioning, like never before, global economic fundamentals. We are worried about China. We are worried about the slowdown 
that's happening around the, in, the emerging, in the emerging world. Europe has cut its growth forecast. There's even talk of the possibility of a recession in the U.S. So suddenly, the first element of the perfect storm is concerns about fundamentals. The second element about, about, of the perfect storm is the loss of trust in central bank effectiveness. Two reasons for that. One is we have divergent monetary policies now. Central banks are no longer on the same side. We have the Fed that has exited QE and that has started hiking interest rates. So it is taking its foot off the accelerator. Meanwhile, the ECB, the People's Bank of China, and the, the Bank of Japan are going the other way. This divergent central bank context is very different from what we've had before, and it has raised doubts about the effectiveness of central banks in repressing volatility. And then the third element is the lack of patient capital. There is no big balance sheet with, quote, permanent capital that can step in now and act counter-cyclically. In fact, liquidity is challenged because the broker-dealer's appetite for counter-cyclical risk has, has been reduced. So put these three things together, and you get this volatility, enormous volatility, um, that then causes its own dynamic. Now, the good news, Barry, is that so far, this has been a financial event. It hasn't contaminated the real economy. And that is the major call for 2016. Will this continued financial volatility contaminate the real economy, or is the real economy resilient enough to be able to continue its gradual healing process? That, that's quite fascinating. Let, let's talk about this divergence amongst central banks, because if you look at it in a chronological order, it doesn't so much look like they're diverging as much as they're out of phase. The U.S. under Ben Bernanke was very aggressive in the 08-09 crisis, zero interest rate policy, quantitative easing, Operation Twist. They threw a lot of stuff, and it had an impact. Uh, Europe was a little more standoffish, and Japan had been trying all sorts of things over the years. It looks like Japan saw the U.S. was succeeding and said, okay, we'll try quantitative easing as well. And then a few years after that, Europe finally said, well, everything else we've tried, this austerity thing ain't working. It looks like the U.S. and Japan's QE is working. Why don't we follow them? Are they as much divergence as just kind of out of phase, out of, out of step with each other? So you're absolutely right about the sequencing. Absolutely right. And you're absolutely right that each country was pursuing its domestic objectives, taking into account its domestic conditions. The problem is we live in an interdependent world. Mm -hmm. So let me give you the image of an orchestra. You have the different sections in the orchestra. They have music. And they decide to play from different parts of the music. And then they look up and there isn't a conductor. On a standalone basis, each section will sound okay. But you're not listening to it on a standalone basis. You're listening to the whole orchestra. And the whole orchestra is incoherent. And that's why when I, earlier in our discussions, I said, I've never seen such low level of global policy coordination. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's true that it's been sequential. It's true that every country has responded to domestic conditions. The problem is that we live in a world that's very interconnected and interdependent. So it has to add up. And so and and it's not adding up. So the lack of conductor being an issue, who do you see as playing that role? Is it the leaders uh, of the United States? Is it the IMF? Is it the UN? Who should step in and help to coordinate global central bank monetary policy? 
it should be the IMF for both positive and negative reasons. The positive reason is that it has universal membership, 188 countries. It has amazing staff, very high expertise, and it has the mechanism to consult with different countries. Um, the negative reason is, is that nothing else works. The G7 is no longer representative of mm -hmm. the global economy. The G20 doesn't have a permanent secretariat. And the G1, the United States, has been so inward focused because of our dysfunctional politics that it's not playing the role of conductor. So for both positive and negative reason, it needs to be the IMF. But for that to happen, you need to deal with some pretty legitimate IMF credibility and governance issues. Uh, and, and is there any likelihood that we're going to see that happen? They've been criticized for their, some of their less uh, prescient forecasts. They've been criticized about some of the emergency measures they've put in place. Can the IMF fulfill that role? So I think it can if Europe is willing to give up some of its historical entitlements, particularly when it comes to voting power and representation on the board, and, and, and provide that to the emerging world. Until that happens, countries like China will build little pipes around the IMF and the World Bank. We've seen them do this with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and with various bilateral swap arrangements. So you, you really do need to deal with governance issues. Let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, oil. So we have oil now at about $30 a barrel. That's down from well over 100 less than two years ago. It's a 70% drop. What's the impact of this on the economy, and what does this suggest about future growth? Is this just a supply issue, or is this also a demand issue? It's a supply issue, it's a demand issue, and what has caused the overshoot. In other words, I'm saying that oil prices today cannot be justified by just supply and demand issues. If they were, oil would be higher. What has caused the overshoot is that oil has changed operating modalities. It no longer can rely on OPEC as a swing producer on the downside. And the minute you take the safety net away, oil will overshoot. And we are right now overshooting on the downside, and it's going to take time for the oil market to find its footing because it has lost its swing producer. Um, the irony, we, we talk about improbables. If I was sitting with you two years ago and told you oil would prices would collapse, you would say to me, and I would have said to you, that's great for the economy. That's right. It, because it is an immediate tax cut. It leaves cash in the pocket of people. And it is particularly beneficial for lower income people who have a, a higher marginal propensity to consume. But ironically, oil, the, the low oil price is viewed as a negative thing. It has gone from a blessing to a curse. Why? The only good reason is because the US now also produces energy. The bad reason is that oil market volatility is being blamed as a cause for equity market volatility. People not, don't realize that the two are due to something much bigger, which is this change in, 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 in the perfect storm that, that we talked about earlier. But it is ironic that the biggest tax cut is being viewed as a curse and not a blessing. We've been speaking with Mohamed Alarian of Allianz, uh, Financial Times, and Bloomberg View. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and hang around for our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue the conversation. You could check out more of Mohamed's writings at both FT and BloombergView.com. His most recent books, which I'm holding right here, uh, 
When Markets Collide was named uh, FT and Goldman Sachs Book of the Year, the new one is Muhammad Alarian's The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. Muhammad Alarian, thank you so much for, for hanging around with us. This has been terrific. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Mohammed, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, my great pleasure. Really fascinating. I have to tell you, my my head of research is Mike Batnick, and he has called you the most eloquent thinker on financial matters. He says no matter what he is talking about, it always comes across as just interesting and erudite, and makes you enjoy debating abstract financial discussions. He's very kind, <laughs> and this is his book, which you're going to sign. Uh, Sign for him later. So let's let's go through a few questions which we didn't get to, and then I want to ask you some of my standard questions I ask all my guests. So your colleague at PIMCO, Paul McCulley, is a friend. I go fishing with him every summer up in Maine in August, and he was a big Hyman Minsky fan. Obviously, the book refers, the mention of instability refers to Minsky's great thesis, which is stability breeds instability. So he's a Minsky fan. You're a Minsky fan. I'm curious as to how this developed internally. Who influenced who? So I think we both influenced um, each other. Paul has had a huge influence on me, um, and his friendship is something that I have valued enormously. You know, Paul has this ability to translate complex issues into simple phrases that are very powerful. The Minsky moment is Paul's. The shadow mm-hmm. banking system is Paul. And both of us love a particular chapter in Keynes's general theory, and that is chapter 12. Chapter 12 is very different from the rest of the general theory, as is chapter 22, because it speaks about human behavior. It speaks about what tends to happen um, and this whole concept of animal spirits and overshoots. And that was really at the origin of Minsky and this notion that you can get instability from stability. It makes perfect sense. People start to become complacent. They start to be more greedy and less fearful. And that leads to further instability. Yes, it does. And and also policymakers become more complacent. And I think we saw this, um, you know, go back to the mid-90s, to, to the mid-2000s, when, when policymakers became convinced that we no longer had cycles, the great moderation, right. that it was Goldilocks, and that the financial system could regulate itself. And we know, we know how well that came, worked out. Let, let's talk a little bit about currencies, which seem to be in turmoil. We're at something like 12-year highs for the dollar, despite all the predictions of a collapsing dollar. What does the turmoil in, in currencies tell us about the economy, and what does it tell us about central banks' actions? So we are going through an important transition in currencies. Up to the beginning of February, currencies were basically reflecting differential monetary policy. So when the U.S. embarked on its QE first, the dollar weakened, the euro strengthened, and then when the eurozone and Japan embarked on their QE, the opposite happened, and as you point out, the dollar strengthened. 
But we have switched regimes, and it's been interesting to see how long we switch regimes. Now that there's question marks about the effectiveness of central bank policies, we are seeing currencies start to reflect more fundamentals. So look at the yen. The yen has strengthened notably against the dollar in February. Why? Because people have stopped worrying about negative interest rates in Japan and about QE and have started looking at the balance sheet of Japan, very strong, about the ability of the private sector to repatriate capital and a pretty good current account situation. So we are on the cusp of a transition in paradigms, and the question is going to be whether that that continues or not. Hmm. Let's uh, let's go to some of my favorite questions because I know I only have you for a little while longer. Um, who were some of your early uh, mentors? So my father played a very important role, and there was a particular moment. Um, we were in Paris, and I questioned why it is that we got four different newspapers every day. I thought that that was a complete waste of money. And why did we get four papers? Four, Le Monde. What else? We got Le Monde, Le Figaro. We got uh, François, and then we got one from the right, which will come back to me in a second. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, we got L'Humanité mm -hmm. from the left. And I asked him, why is it that we need these four newspapers? After all, news is news. News reporting is news reporting. Why are we wasting our money on four newspapers? And he said to me, you've got to understand that people interpret things differently. And you've got to be open to different interpretations. No one has a monopoly over the right interpretation. And by encouraging you to read four different newspapers every day, you will realize that different people interpret the same facts differently. And you've got to understand that. And that for me was very influential. And it has helped me keep an open mind at a time when it's been very easy to slip back into the familiar. Hmm, that's, that's quite fascinating. Um, how about some favorite books other than your own? What are some of your favorite reads over the years? So my own are not favorites. In fact, I, I do not read what I've written. Um, neither to, will I listen to this podcast, believe it or not. No, okay. no, no I, I really don't enjoy doing that um, at all. You know, I, I've been influenced by, by lots and lots of books, and I've been lucky for the last few years to be on the Financial Time jury for Book of the Year, which exposes me to books that I don't have the discipline to read otherwise. That's why I keep on doing it. Um, I'm very struck recently by books that talk about fundamental transformations, about the, the ability of disruptors to disrupt you even though they don't know much about your sector. Mm -hmm. Airbnb, I'll give you a simple statistic, Barry. It took Hilton 100 years to provide 700,000 rooms to its clients. It took Airbnb six years to provide a million rooms. Wow. And Airbnb didn't build a single hotel. They don't manage a single hotel. And they do it with 600 people. Look what Uber has done to that. I am fascinated by these disruptions, and there's been a number of books written about the disruptors, especially in the music industry. The music industry has been disrupted beyond anything. Any standout books you want to mention uh, by title? So um, I would – the one book I would mention in particular is The Disruptive Role of Robots. Um, it's by Martin Ford. It is a very provocative book. You may or may not agree with – his policy recommendations, but you better realize that we are in the next phase of a transformation. Machine learning is an incredibly powerful disruptor. This is Rise of the Robots? Correct. Is that right? This is like number three in my queue 
I have one. Of Move it books. up. Move it up. Really, it's it's right. Be, then it'll be right behind Sapiens is number one in my <laughs> queue. What else? What else uh, stands out as a uh, interesting book? You mentioned um, Keynes, right? Clearly, so, so so Keynes for me. I, I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge for for my undergraduate, and I never opened a textbook. Really, yeah. we they didn't use textbooks. We always had it was to, all uh, iPods back. Then. No, right. It was <laughs> yeah. It was we all went to the library and went to the original work, and wow. I read Keynes Law. So that has had a huge influence on me. Um, and chapter twenty two and chapter twelve, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. in particular, um, John Robinson um, has had a huge influence on me. Herod and and the various biographies of Keynes have had a huge influence on me. Um, so I put that, but but I wouldn't recommend that necessarily to mm-hmm. to young people. Recommend, for example, the book "How Music Got Free." Okay, again, encourage people to think differently. Be willing to question conventional wisdom, because we're going through massive transformations. Joan Robinson stands out because there's a quote of hers that I just adore and use all the time, which is, "We study economics not to learn about the economy." But so as to not be fooled by the economists, Correct. and I find that quite quite fascinating perspective. So let me give you my my wake up call. Um, I was asked for an interview at Cambridge, and my teacher at school gave me a book that had just come out and said, "Read this book, and I don't care what you do, but mention it in the interview because they're going to be really impressed that you read it." I knew my interview was forty five minutes. I went up there in in minute forty two. I hadn't had an opportunity to mention the book, mm-hmm. and I was panicking. At that point, I pivoted completely from what we were talking about and said, oh, this reminds me of the book. I was being interviewed by two people, one person who had been taking notes and the other person who had been asking the question. Suddenly, the person taking notes smiled, and I should have realized that that was a warning sign, put down his note and asked me, tell me about the book. And I went, Barry, into a perfectly prepared monologue. And my confidence was rising, and I finished thinking, this is great. I've nailed it. And then he asked me a single question that demolished the whole thesis of the book. And I was speechless. He then got up. It was his room, went to his bookshelf, pulled off an off-print, and gave it to me. It was his review of the book. And he said to me, Mohammed, just because it's published, it doesn't mean it's right. And then I realized it's not what you think but how you think. And for me, that was a really important moment. Wow, that's, that's quite a lesson. Uh, so in the last few minutes, uh, I have two favorite questions uh, I, I love to ask because we always get fascinating answers. The first is, if you were speaking to a millennial or a recent college grad and they asked you for some career advice, what would you tell them? I would tell them, sequence your career correctly. Take risks early on, because Mm -hmm. as you get older, you'll find it harder to take risk. Be willing to join startups. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Be willing to fail, because most of the people who have succeeded in life did that after failing, right? And don't go into a conventional career too early. Sounds like very good advice. My last question is, is sort of related. What do you know today about investing or finance or industry or, or anything really that you wish you knew when you started your career 30 years ago? So I wish I had questioned earlier on the conventional wisdom that cash has no role to play in asset allocation. 
that is a conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. that cash has absolutely no role to play. But when you enter into artificial world, an artificial world where central banks are not just your referee, but they're also on the field, cash gives you three things that are most valuable. One, resilience. You can afford to make mistakes elsewhere. You will not be forced out of positions that quickly. Second, it gives you optionality. You can change your mind. With liquidity diminishing, optionality becomes really important. And thirdly, it gives you agility. Because when you get volatility, you get price contagion, you get price overshoots, and good companies get hammered by what's happening to bad companies. So the one thing I would say, and I would say today, is is this conventional wisdom that cash has no part to play in an asset allocation should be revisited. And I wish I had realized that earlier on. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Mohammed, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, be sure, and if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see the other 78 or so uh, such conversations we've had. I would be remiss if I failed to thank Mike Batnick, uh, my head of research, and Charlie Vollmer, my recording engineer for the day, as well as Taylor Riggs, who produces and, and books the show. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.